Hi guys, my name's Dan Keenan. For those of you who haven't listened to the podcast before, this is Control the Coronables, which has been set up by myself, Dan Keenan, the director of Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and John McGann, the director of the MacX Tennis Academy in Ireland, and also Irish Fed Cup captain. During this difficult period with the coronavirus going around the world, everybody in lockdown, we wanted to we wanted to give back to the tennis community through giving them something that will energize them, an educational tool, and also an opportunity to en- entertain through storytelling with some of these fantastic guests in the tennis world. The first people that I thought of when we set up the podcast were two very good friends of mine, Johnny Murray and Freddie Nielsen, who had a Roy of the Rovers run to winning Wimbledon in, back in 2012. When I spoke to the boys, they were very kind. They got on the phone and they, they spoke to myself and John for almost four hours, which was an afternoon full of laughter, an afternoon full of rich learnings. And we've managed to edit this down into a three-part series, which is pre-Wimbledon 2012, which is episode one that you're listening to now. Episode two will be Wimbledon 2012. And an episode three will be post-Wimbledon 2012. The boys show amazing humility, intelligence to be able to get their stories across. And, and they share some of the most amazing experiences that, that, that they've experienced on the tennis court, but also many of us in the tennis world have watched, watched from afar. I hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, I'm gonna, we're going to pass you over, over to the boys. Thank you. Johnny Murray, how, how are you? I'm in, I'm in. How's it going, guys? You all right? And how are you doing, Freddie? All good. All good. Thanks for having me. Well, hey, Freddie. Hey, Johnny. Good to see you, boys. John, John. Bye, um, boys. So to, to get to get a start, I suppose in this in this day and age, we've obviously moved into a into a new world. You know, certainly the last. I think we're day eighteen here in Spain. Um, how are you guys keeping yourself busy during this time? Um, so I, I'm. I'm actually. I'll go on, Freddie. You go. You go. No, no, go. You have much more wise things to say. <laughs> Not really. Uh, so I'm actually in Hong Kong at the minute. I, uh, I'm doing a bit of work out here, and I flew out here in the beginning of March. Okay. And so I'm kind of got stuck out here. But we're actually able, able to work over here a little bit, so we're still able to give lessons, and we're still able to go out. So it's, it, it's quite different, I think, to, to most of you guys back at home, back in Europe and everything. So... We're still quite fortunate to be able to do that at the minute. Uh, has, it like, has it been like that all the way through? <laughs> Have you had any period in Hong Kong? Well, it, it obviously started in China, didn't it? And then yeah. Hong Kong was pretty quick to kind of close things down and everyone wears masks and uh, they kind of closed a lot of clubs and a lot of, a lot of public uh, facilities down. Initially, this is kind of end of February. And then... I think we started to relax the rules a little bit, but, but now since it kind of kicked off again, the second wave, I think we call it, so everyone's been a bit, things are closing down again. 
but fortunately for us at the minute, I'm still able to kind of get out there and kind of do some work and stuff, so yeah. Ready? Yeah, well, our country is pretty much locked down publicly. We were only able to go to the <clears throat> supermarket and the hospital and then uh, takeaway restaurants open. So uh, no fitness centers, no tennis. So the last few weeks I've been, uh, I actually managed to go to LA for two days for Indian Wells before I, I went straight back home. And at home I've been, I had some paperwork from Davis Cup that I had to catch up on and I'm, I'm, I've been doing that for most of the day. And then once a day, I'm doing a physical workout. But other than that, it's pretty much just hanging around, waiting, waiting for for the tour to resume. And uh, I know they've said that next next tournaments are June 8th, but I am pretty much pretty certain that it will be longer than that. So I don't really have much much stress getting back on court. So I'm just waiting until the weather gets good enough to play outside, so we can start playing again. Other than that, I'm I'm taking it pretty easy and. Spending some time at home with my wife and uh, yeah, not not doing too much to be honest. Are you enjoy Are you enjoying that bit of a break, Freddie? Um, break from the tour? Or do you miss it? I'm I'm enjoying spending time with my wife and getting into more routine every day. But I do miss the tour. I miss playing tennis. I was just starting a new partnership with with a German player, Tim Pitts, and we were we'd spend a lot of time last year preparing and. <laughs> And getting ready to go and we didn't really have much of a we were supposed to do a preseason together but I was injured and he was sick so we didn't spend much time and we got off to a decent start and we were looking forward to build on that so that was a bit yeah. of a shame that that got going from a personal point of view but uh, but yeah it, I mean not nothing is uh, so bad it's not good for something and obviously we are much better off than a lot of people um, uh, that have a really hard time so uh, yeah I'm 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 enjoying what it ha what it has to offer for sure, but no 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 question that I'm missing the tour. Yeah, <clears throat> and I think that it's sort of tennis. We've certainly we've tried to reframe this. You know, when obviously things happen, we, not without looking at the seriousness of it. But in terms of kind of reframing it, looking at opportunities, like you say, spending time with your family, you know, developing our technological skills, developing you know other skills while we can go. Do you think there's a chance that this pandemic could could act like that for the sport of tennis? You know, you guys, and, do you, and and if so, what could be changed from this, and what could the positives be in tennis from this? Fred, um, yeah, man, well, the time will tell because tennis is such an individual sport. It depends on if you talk about it from from player development. If if you are I mean, if you if you take advantage of this time, you really have a time to to reevaluate how you play tennis and what 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 the important things in your lives are. So, if you're kind of in the thick and thin of everyday life, you uh, it's tough to really make big changes because there's a tournament and a match every week, basically, and and to really make significant changes. So, if you have a big change, technically, now is the time. If you have some some question marks psychologically or mentally, you want to develop then yeah. Uh, now is the time. So, so if you really have something that you want to change and make sure that you clear some of the question marks from your from your game, now is the time. Because if you if you don't take advantage of basically one year free of uh, of tournaments and while you're still healthy, then when are you ever going to do it? So I think now is the time. I think it's a really big question mark to uh, to say how tennis as a whole is going to change of this because I think tennis is one of the last sports that's going to be back on. Because of the, because of tennis being a traveling sport, 
Yeah. So it's really interesting to see really how many tournaments are going to survive from this and how, how, how tennis is going to be after that. I think your guess is as good as mine. But from a personal point of view, I think this is a great time to, 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 to clear up your tennis and determine, you know, what, what's been bothering you, how, what kind of player do you want to be, and then start with that. Because if you, if you don't come back with, with a clear plan and uh, kind of learn from previous mistakes, then when are you ever going to, to be honest? No, good answer. Good. There's a couple of things that there's a couple of things that jump out for me on that. Is one you mentioned a year without tournaments? Is that is that what you're thinking? You think it could be it could be as much as that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first tournaments are going to be the grass tournaments. There's predominantly in England, which is not really clear to be close to be hosting tennis tournaments. I think after that is America, um, which is just going to get worse and worse from now on. Yeah, and after that, like if 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 you can't really open up the tour for everybody, then you can't really open up the tour, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unfair. So, yeah, I think I think we should be happy if we get tournaments this year. But I'm kind of mentally preparing for for no more tennis this year. But we'll just have to wait and see, won't we? But I think it doesn't look good for tennis to to have more tournaments this year. But I'm only preparing myself for that fact in case it were to happen i'm planning on what i know and what i can control and so far the tournament is june 8th so i'm preparing for june 8th until that changes psychologically i'm trying to be ready for 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 worse than that for the for the people listening in just in case they weren't weren't sure but freddie's obviously from from denmark and he's the current davis cup captain and still plays on the pro tour uh, he's had a career high ranking of 17 in doubles, 55 is his current ranking. Um, so phenomenal that you're still playing tennis and you're captain in your, your, your country. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and then there's three ATP tour titles to his name. It's a Grand Slam champion. And um, yeah, he's had a singles uh, world height uh, of 190. So uh, two phenomenal uh, players in front of us here. And I'm very, very proud to be in the same webinar as you guys. So thank you. And what oh, would thanks be for having us. What would be great to get, guys, would be obviously we're going to move on to Wimbledon 2012, and mm-hmm. we'd like to we'd like to relive some of those insights uh, with you guys. But up until up until you guys started your pro careers, it'd be great to to get a little bit of an insight into how your journeys were. You know, so if Freddie, if you let us know a little bit about your junior career, you know how it was. You know going into whatever detail you want to go into really but it'd be great to to get some of that insight yeah i can easily do that um until i was 13 i think it was i was playing football at a reasonably high level as well as tennis and at that point i just started to be out muscled by the bigger guys and i didn't find it as fun so i decided to go full-time on tennis not because i'm particularly good in tennis but i enjoyed it and uh, wasn't really competitive in football anymore and then from then on i started uh, spending most of my free time on tennis and playing in national tournaments in Denmark to a not particularly successful level. Um, I managed to win one national championships when I was 17. Um, but apart from that, I was not particularly successful. I had one decent year in, uh, in Danish juniors and I tried to play at the ITF tour, but was not very successful. I actually managed to get a higher ATP high than ITF high right. uh, so that pretty much shows that I was a late bloomer 
Um, I didn't really have thoughts of becoming a pro uh, because it seemed unrealistic to me because I wasn't good enough. And it was actually my mom who encouraged me to play full time because some of the other guys in Denmark did without being having particularly strong merits for it. And I kind of started playing full time tennis because I was I loved the game of tennis, um, but not because I thought I was going to achieve anything particular. I remember when I started playing, my coach took me to a German club and said, next year when you come back, you'll have a better stronger case to argue a bigger deal because you'll have an ATP point. And I was just laughing at him and said, yeah, yeah, ATP point as if, and then, uh, and then two years, uh, one year into my uh, traveling on the tour, I was ranked 800, but five of my points was from, were from wildcards. Right. Um, so from, from, from a wildcard. And then I went to Mexico for three weeks and I took three ATP points. And at the end of that trip, I was just super stoked because I was like, okay, I think I'm actually able to maintain my ranking of 800 without the help of wildcards if I maintain this average of being able to get three ATP points at three 10,000 yeah. tournaments and how old, in Mexico. And how old were you then, Freddie? At what, at what age was that? This was 20. Because I'd like to bring you in now, Johnny, as well, because you, I think what's quite unique about both of you guys, you, have, you do have similar journeys in terms of how you were in junior. So if you can kind of give us a little insight into you as well johnny get us up to age 20 so then we can be at 20 years old each and we'll talk from there yeah i mean it's the first time i've actually heard freddie uh, talk about how you know growing up playing tennis and 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 you know my my story is pretty similar really uh i played a lot of football growing up that was my number one sport i'd say and i still played football you know for a sunday league team and a saturday league team till i was about 18 yeah. years old uh, i started playing tennis when i was about nine or ten uh and we we're just watching wimbledon in the summer holidays myself and my brother and my mum just took us down the local club and that's how we kind of started playing from there just just a one group lesson on a saturday morning and we both really enjoyed it and so we, we kind of played a bit more regularly uh and then yeah i suppose in the early teens going to more kind of group lessons i think i had one individual lesson a week and a few squad lessons and then we'd I'd obviously play with my brother and had a group of mates that we kind of played played a lot with down the club I think uh, that's one big thing I kind of I, I remember from growing up playing tennis that I, I don't really see as much anymore you know when I go down my local club maybe back in Sheffield or, or even over here in Hong Kong I don't see many groups of friends going down and just playing playing the game so that, that, that that's one thing that, that kind of surprises me a little bit but Anyway, from, uh, yeah, I, I never really had major ambitions. My, my parents didn't really know much about tennis. We didn't come from a tennis background. So we were kind of learning as we were going along in my kind of junior junior days. And, and I was playing it because I loved playing it, really. And we'd go to local kind of Yorkshire tournaments and then a few tournaments in the summer, summer holidays kind of uh, throughout the UK. And, I, you know, I, I never played any ITF tournaments. I didn't, didn't really know what they were, to be honest with you, until I was, uh, yeah. uh, well, as a junior. So, <clears throat> so yeah, never really got involved in that side of it. And then I suppose probably when I was about 16, uh, I started doing my A-levels and I was thinking after, after my A-levels, I'd have a year out maybe to try and play, play tennis full-time, something that I, you know, I wanted to do. I wanted to do. And, and again, like Freddie, I wasn't, I wasn't, anywhere near winning any of the national championships. I think I, I was playing qualifying in the national cha championships and not really, I'm, I'm not sure if I even qualified for any of them. So, you know, it wasn't really on my radar 
being being fresh. I didn't really know what it took either. So uh, it was all a big learning experience. And then I suppose when I when I finished school at eighteen, I you know we just tried to to, to find places to to train. I, I think I went up to Leeds Carnegie uh, University and joined in with the university team. And I would I think we had we had friends kind of stay with us other other people who were in the same situation trying to play full time I think I remember my parents put, putting them up and then staying at our, our house for a few weeks at a time you know and we just go down our club and train together a lot of the time so uh, I would say you know I'd, I'd still have the occasional you know I'd still have some some lessons and some coach kind of uh, guidance but most of my development and in, in that kind of age I would say would be group lessons and then <coughs> playing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's funny, it's funny you say that, Johnny, because it's, it's like, um, I think it's one of the big things now um, <clears throat> that culture has definitely changed. Everything seems to be so structured and have to be organized now for people to come out and play tennis. And I would have been very similar to you guys growing up, you know, playing football, playing tennis, but you go down to the local tennis club and there'd just be people pitching up having a game um, but it wasn't organized and it seems like now the times have totally changed that you know in order for people to get out and play or to see groups of kids to be out and play it has to be in a kind of structured organized environment what what do you think about that if i can chime in there I, I, it kills me a little bit because i feel that every time a kid's on on court it's first of all it's supervised and it's constant feedback so you don't really give the kids enough time to develop themselves or feel the flow or discovering what works, what doesn't work. And it's just, yeah, it, for, for, for me, it becomes so, so stiff and structured, but then at the same time, a lot of people do it. So may, maybe that's just the, the, the change of, of, of a generation. But for me, I think it's sad because I was the same as Johnny. Every time we had a, we were done with our organized lessons, we stayed in the club. If somebody didn't come on their court for 15 minutes, we were in to play for 15 minutes. Every yeah. weekend we were hanging from the morning to the evening to try and get a free court. And we enjoyed that social part of it. And I think that gave us so much. And it gave us, uh, it gave me a lot of uh, personal desire. And, and I figured out what that, that I wanted to play for my side. And it gave me a lot of uh, yeah. in, individualism and, and, and taught me a lot about to take care of myself and, and, and uh, yeah figure out how much I wanted and do it myself. And you're now ready not to disclose your age too much, but you, you're not a million miles off me and people know that I'm a bit old. So mm -hmm. you're still playing, you know? So, and yeah. I think, you know, the fact that you, you've had such an almost an organic growth and, and the same with you, Johnny, you, you only recently stopped playing, you know, you guys have had pretty long careers would you would you say that's one of the benefits of doing it the way that you guys have done it, Johnny? Yeah, I think so. I think I think uh, it was always something playing tennis I, I wanted to do, and and I I had a lot of control over what I did. Uh, like yeah. I said, I didn't really know what what I was getting into when I first started. You know, I, I just know I just knew I loved playing and I wanted to try and get better. You know, and I and I always yeah. you know I, I tried to find places to, to help me do that and look fortunately for me a lot of people throughout my tennis career helped, helped me along the way there's, there's yeah. so many people you know uh, yeah. and you, you obviously need that help that expert help at certain points along yeah. the way but it, it has to I think it has to be self-driven you, you've got to be the person who wants to improve you've got to 
want to try and find a way to get better and if if it's other people looking for that for you then it's it's never you know you never really got yeah, to maximize yeah yeah and not no, only maximize it it, it it becomes not as uh, enjoyable when you then achieve something if you don't yeah. understand why you're achieving it then it just becomes something superficial you know and 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 that's the biggest thing for me is that you, to to be able to enjoy something you have to understand why you're doing it and why you personally have a stake in it and if you don't do that then winning it doesn't become as enjoyable just one of the yeah just every time just on that point like freddie every time i'd see freddie you know i might not see him for six months or eight months and i'd see him at tournament and he's i was like yeah how, how are things going fred and he's like oh yeah i've got it you know i found this new you know i've been doing this and i've been i'm trying to play this way i'm stepping up the core and you know he was so enthusiastic about finding another way to kind of get better and it was it was quite refreshing for me sometimes just to hear that enthusiasm for someone who's been on the tour for like 12 years or whatever so uh freddie's definitely one of those people that's it's always still there find a way. True, true love true love for the game that is true love, exactly. true love. yeah and when did so when did you guys um when did you guys meet i guess when did and when and how did this relationship Obviously, you've got lots of different, you've both achieved individual, had great individual achievements. You've both had highly successful singles careers. You've both had independently very successful doubles careers. How did you two come together? I mean, I've played a lot of tournaments in Britain and we tend to, to look for the same surfaces. You wouldn't see us in... Grinding it out. In Genoa and Como in the summer to grind it out on the clay. So we try, try to look for the same tournaments and it just kind of slowly happened we i think the danes have already always got along well with the brits so i got along well with the brits and then obviously when we played in the same german league it started being more and more together and i think we've i i liked johnny from the get-go and if you like people you try, try to spend more time with them so try to band as much as possible with with johnny at tournaments and it's just then we played one tournament together we played pants and then got more got to know each other but i had a second chance in ireland and then yeah, slowly just got to know each other. Did you, did you guys start playing on the Futures Tour or the Challenger Tour? Doubles. Yeah, together, you mean? I mean? Yeah. Together, yeah. Together. Oh, sorry, to, to us playing together. Uh, well, we didn't really, yeah. we didn't really play together a huge amount. I think we, we, we obviously, we're part of the same as uh, German League team, as Freddie mentioned, that logo pack. Uh, but I don't yeah. even think we played doubles together there, did we, Fred? No, we played one challenger in 06 or something together where we, in Nottingham. That was the one where we played Pence. And then we played in Ireland, in the challenger in Ireland. We made a final there. Uh, yeah. That was, you know, where we, we had a funny moment in the, in the final where, because it was one of them classic Irish moments where it was cold, rainy, right. you play on the Astro, just keep playing. You can't break, you can't find a break. We got broken one yeah. because of, Especially with my returns, bad calls. <laughs> and and in the middle of the second set, I I say to Johnny, I say, I'm sorry, Johnny. This is nothing personal, but this is the. And then Johnny finishes my sentence. Most boring match of my life. Yeah, I know. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and and not to not to fast forward through your careers, but you've taken us up to twenty. Um, Wimbledon 2012, I believe, Freddie, you were 29. Johnny, you were 31, 28, 31, those sort of ages. It's a pretty impressive 
thing that you're still playing in the sport of tennis at that age. So, so you've obviously had some success. So, so how did you go from, uh, this is a question on a couple of levels, and maybe you can answer one bit each. How did you go from being average, and, and Freddie, I didn't know you so well at that age. I, I remember playing Johnny, and as much as I love you, Johnny, was average. <laughs> You know, at that, at that age, um, you know, you ended up with the last laugh, though. So, so in terms of in terms of from that, how did you do that in terms of development? One to get yourselves to that level, and secondly, which I think is a it's a big question on a lot of people's lips in the tennis world: how do you financially survive through through that period? Um, and you know, what are the genuine costs that are associated with that? So, I don't know if you want to maybe take one one of those bits each. Uh, where should we start? Okay. Uh, how do you go from being average? <laughs> uh, I suppose. Uh, I mean, what was it? I mean, I, I think I, I moved from, I, I recognized towards my late twenties. Took me a while to recognize it, but, uh, you know, singles, my, my kind of game style didn't really, wasn't really cutting it. You know, and, 200 and, and, in the world, Johnny. Yeah, 200 in the world. Yeah, but on fast surfaces. Yeah, you know, I, I had I had certain strengths that I could uh, in my game that I could get by and get. Johnny to was made level. for a different generation. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so the courts are obviously slowing down. We're slowing down at that stage as well, and you know, yeah, like I said, my game style, my, 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 from the back of the court, I was very average, as you like to put it, Dan, thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I had certain strengths in my game, volleying and my serve on my day could be, you know, was okay. Uh, and I, I think I had seen, we, we, we got some, a lot of help from Louis. I know you, you know, Louis pretty well, Dan, I think. Oh, yeah, Louis Kaye. And he came on the Brit, British kind of tennis scene kind of towards my late 20s, mid to late 20s. And uh, I saw, you know, I saw how Jamie and Ross Hutchins and other other guys were making a, a, a kind of good living, play, or a living playing doubles and, and being competitive in the, uh, in the doubles tournaments, you know, the top doubles tournaments. Yeah. So for me, being around 200 mark, 250 mark uh, for a few years, and I, I actually had a bit of a shoulder injury uh, for six months to a year so that kind of brought me back down to square one and you know I just I just had to reassess basically where my career was going and whether I wanted to try and continue yeah. doing what I was doing or maybe maybe yeah. focus a bit more on doubles so uh, I kind of took that route and and fortunately for me and I think for a lot of guys in the UK Louis Louis kind of brought his system to it and his expertise and yeah. really helped us as he's helped many people since as well uh developers doubles players so uh so i kind of made that call at the late 20s and i think that suited my double suited my game or my my skills as a tennis player i mean made me unable to kind of compete at a better at a better level really uh i think also in terms of getting to the next level the next level in terms of like wimbledon and everything i think I really embrace kind of the men mental skill side of, of, of my game as well. I think that that was a kind of massive, a massive part of me being able to, you know, get further in the, in, in the bigger tournaments. And 
do well at Wimbledon that time. So, can you give us a little insight, Johnny? Because, because again, one of the things on my mind, I was actually I was sharing a room with you at the time when you you were having an incredible um, stage on the challenges. You know, Uzbekistan, you were taking out all the Russian guys. You know, you did very successful. You came back. You then had the run to the third round of Queens, where you had all the set points against against Ewart, You know, in both, in both sets. And you then you then played Carol Beck at Wimbledon, which I'm sure you remember. Um, and what you're talking about. you were playing incredible tennis at that time, but you you were or you did showcase outward strong stresses when you when you lost set points, match points against Carol Beck at Wimbledon. And probably at the time, my reflection is you didn't handle that so well. So then to go and serve, which we'll get to in a bit, serve out the match in a Wimbledon final, you know, how did you go from, you know, make those changes on the mindset and the mental side of your game? Yeah, so a uh, little, little bit of background on the, the, the Carol Beck uh, Wimbledon, I think it was 2004. Like you said, I had a good run in my singles. I was probably playing the best tennis. Yeah. I played, I played Queens and made third round. This is singles. And then... Had a, had, a, had a good run in Nottingham as well. So I was coming to Wimbledon, my first time playing main draw Wimbledon. So I was obviously, you know, pretty, pretty nervous, you know, and, 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 you know, wanting to do well, obviously. And I felt I was playing re really well at that time as well. And uh, basically I, I lost in five sets. I think I served for the match, had match point. And I don't know, I think at that time, it means everything to you, obviously, doesn't it? It's like yeah. your whole world, this is, you know, what what you're here to, to do to kind of play and what you've worked hard for. And yeah, I think it's it's a natural thing to be quite uptight, I suppose, or, or, or want to win so badly. Yeah. And and yeah, that was a massive blow. And that, that kind of, that did, like you said, it, it knocked me for a while. That I think I went to the, to, to the States instead of taking that kind of... Uh, confidence from that that run I had at the beginning of the year where I got my ranking up and I got a wild card to Wimbledon and I played I played really well in that match but obviously couldn't get over the line and I think that like you say that affected me a lot and and and, and just the kind of belief that I I was good enough to 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 win matches at the, at the big events you know and I I took that as oh I'm not good enough yeah and and that kind of that was ruminating in my head for a while, and I think all all, all the players that'll be in your academy, you know, they've had similar experiences. Everyone has those experiences of when you mm. uh, when you feel like you know you're playing well and, and you want to win, and, and you're so anxious to to try and get that win. But yeah, like I said, it, it took me the rest of that year really. Wimbledon obviously in July, and it took me the rest of that year to kind of get over it, and then. I think, you know, like Fred, like you are saying earlier on about this kind of little break here, I think I, I just played and played and played and played and tried to, and I was banging my head against the brick wall. Played through it, yeah. Yeah, played through it. And, you know, you get different bits of advice from different people. Some people say, just play, just keep on playing, keep on playing, you'll find a way out of it. And I think for me, I think that, that, peer, that period, I found out that, that, that that's not really the, the best okay. action for me, you know? Yeah. I think... Yeah. Like, like you're saying, this time now, being able to take a step back, you, you usually when you when you you can play every week of the year, you know, if you really want to, and a lot of people do. But but for me, having these 
this kind of you know reassessment every every couple of months or every month taking a step back having a week a week off to really evaluate where things are going right yeah. where things are going wrong which so i fun. get but did, did you have help I me mean, i guess that there's one thing to <clears throat> to just take time off and get over things naturally you know, it'll be a natural yeah. but a bit like getting physically fit you you have to go and do the work to get physically fit was there work that you went to do to improve your mental fitness uh i yeah i think i, I did i did try i did try at that stage and I, you know what i can't can't exactly remember because it's not like i took a break and then everything was fine you know yeah. that, 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 those type of things can, can easily sit deep in <laughs> deep in there in your mind can't they for, for, for years to come or whatever yeah because that's quite a deep belief you know if you're not good enough for something uh but I suppose in the lead up to Wimbledon in 2012, I remember the back end of 2011, I'd, uh, I had been playing with, with Jamie Delgado for a few years and, and we kind of, our partnership uh, finished at the end of 2011. And I was 30 years old and I'm, I'm kind of, I think, I think that partnership ended because there were certain moments, when, key moments in matches when I, I didn't kind of perform, you know, the big points, I, I would... I would get tight and I wouldn't perform very well. And, you know, I think it's, it's just having the, you've got to be able to admit that that's happening. Yeah. You know, and you've got to, you've got to try and, it needs to be addressed, you know, you, it's, you can't just say, have a break and then I'll come back in a week's time and get it better. So I would say, at the end of 2011, I was kind of like a crossroads. Am I going to continue playing or aren't I going to continue playing? And, and I think that was the time that I really <clears throat> made that kind of mental side of things. Because I, I, knew, I knew deep down this was happening at certain moments in matches, you know. I was getting tight and I, you know, I'd thrown double faults or I'd, I'd get from certain balls and miss shots. shots. You know, I'd never, I'd never usually miss. So yeah. it was a time that I found some help from, from somebody uh, and I, I really bought into it. You know, I really wanted, I, I knew, I admitted that that was part of my game that needed addressing. So I really kind of committed to certain processes Good. Uh, involved in that. And I know, well, yeah, it's a, sim, a, a guy that actually works with one, one, one of your places, yeah. uh, Evan. Yeah. And you, we, we know him, you know, we know him really well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's, what one person's going to do it, but you, you, you've got to have a certain relationship with somebody and you've got to buy into maybe what they're trying to do to help. And put the work in. It's like any, it's like yeah, any. Of course so. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was my priority. That was my priority for the, you know. It's also great to hear as well that like someone of your level and, you know, a Grand Slam champion that, you know, you have those same feelings as, you know, you know, a junior player's having and, or I've had in, in numerous matches that I've played but um, but obviously you're in a different stratosphere. But you're you're basically feeling the same things um, as a lot of other players do when they're on a, on a, on a tennis court or on the tour or in whatever level they're at. Absolutely. And Freddie, we we don't want to leave you out because you've got you've got some nuggets down there. Um, the second part of my question: How do you genuinely make it work? The I guess the journey 
you know, once we, we, we know and you don't have to talk about the paycheck you got when you won Wimbledon, but in terms of the journey up until that point, the paychecks aren't so big. So how did you genuinely make that work? And what were the genuine costs associated with the journey to being the top 100 player in the world? Well, as you all know, tennis is a very expensive sport. And um, I've pretty much spent the money that I made on my tennis. Yeah. Um, so when we left, we, we were talking before until I was 20. At 20, my, my mom passed away and we were living in the same apartment. So my dad told me, I can help you with the rent for the first two years. And after that, you have to, uh, to take care of it yourself. Yeah. So in that mind, my mind, that was just, okay, that's two, two years of free tennis. And then after yeah. that, I'll probably have to quit because there's no way I'm going to be able to afford playing tennis. But then yeah. I slowly got better, got a few sponsorships. And, uh, and along the way, it's, it, I, I, I always reinvested the money. So I never really put much money aside because if I made money, I could uh, travel to more desirable tournaments or I could hire some coaches or, or these kind of things. So for a long time, uh, I was just reinvesting my money into my own tennis because I was able to do things that I never really was able to do before. Yeah. I had coaches involved from my club or the National Tennis Association, but it was more sporadic and they were helping many other players. I'm not saying that it wasn't great, but, but I never really invested myself into the game and I was able to do that slowly. That improved a little bit. Um, and, and then, yeah, as, as I slowly got better, I was able to get better contracts for uh, international team tennis obviously increase in tennis uh, level, the, the paycheck gets higher and the less you have to pay. That's the stupid way of the system, but the, the better you are, the less you pay. So yeah. if you play ATP tournaments every year, you make a bit of price money. You don't pay any expenses because you get three meals a day on site and you get a hotel paid for. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, so the, the better I got, the more money I was able to make. And uh, I was able for a little bit of a while play uh, Grand Slams in singles qualifying, which was a good paycheck as well. And, and slowly it just started adding up, but a big help was a Danish insurance company that, that started helping a few okay. of us in tennis that, uh, that, uh, that made a big difference uh, to us in traveling uh, in the midst around the 2005 to 8, 9, 10s, and yeah. uh, that helped sustain it. And by then I was able to kind of sustain my tennis by myself after that. But like I said, if I made more money, I would reinvest it more into my own game and so it was just, and it was never a matter of considering playing tennis. I never played tennis for the money, or I just played to continue. Like I told you, I laughed at the, cha at the thought of getting a tour, uh, an ATP point, and yeah. I was buzzing by the thought of being able to maintain a ranking of 800 year-round. So when I was able to survive this, these uh, survive these two years of uh, having to to make money for for my rent, I was. I mean, that's also why you know nothing can really knock me out because I started playing tennis with the thought of not being able to get an ATP point. So I'm still here and, and everything is just a bonus. I feel like I'm playing on house money uh, with house money. And that's also why I'm, I mean, I was able to, to continue developing my game. I think one of my strengths is I'm pretty reflective and I'm able to see, okay, what works and what doesn't work. And obviously when I implement that, the results increase, get more money and get bigger contracts for, for international team tennis and, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much a slow process, but it's pretty much how it works. You know, the better you get, the more money you make. I remember you saying once, Freddie, um, and I'm, well, I'm more than once, you know, and I've certainly, I've told you this a lot, and Soto Tennis players and coaches, you've got Freddie to 
uh, thank for quite a lot of our philosophies. You know, it's a lot of our conversations over the years have definitely sinked in and, you know, and soaked into the philosophies we have at the academy. And I remember speaking to you after one match, I've <clears throat> been fortunate enough to be away with you to a couple of tournaments and you won the match and somebody turned to you and said, well done, Freddie. And you said, no, it's not well done. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't commit to the way I wanted to play. I think it was you were working on hitting and coming in after your second serve. And there was two or three occasions where you had second serves to hit and come in. You didn't do it. And you were genuinely disappointed, even though you'd won the match. Could you explain that, that thought process? Yeah, that's what, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was around 2010. 10 I think it was uh, the national center uh, stopped getting funding and I was pretty much left to myself so after having following the guidelines of a lot of coaches for many uh, many years that were just setting generic targets you know ranking targets at the end of this year we want you there and this and this and this which is pretty standard stuff that didn't resonate with me at all I didn't my brain doesn't understand that so when I was left to be with myself a lot more I started to understand much better that in order to give myself the best chance of becoming the best player I could be, I had to focus on playing the best tennis. And winning and losing was not so important to me. What was much more important became how I won and how I lost. And it just started to become so clear to me that uh, if I wanted to become the best player I wanted to become, I had to do certain things in matches, such as coming to the net, like you used an example here. And, and, and for me to get the best out of myself, I had to get in. And if I sacrifice that in order to win a match short term it will cost me in the long term and I was I started getting better and better at understanding that but obviously being late 20s I had a lifetime of habits that I had to overturn that were so deep down within me so it obviously takes time but the fact that I got aware of it made it much easier to analyze matches because I could always analyze matches depending on what I was trying to do and um, and and it makes sense to me my brain that logically to give yourself the best chance of winning a match, you have to play good tennis. And yep. um, sometimes people say you got to find a way to win a match and whatnot. But um, to I, I think you have to see it over a season. What gives you the best chance of winning more matches throughout the year? So there are so many times where like that match you were talking about, for example, I would lose the next match because I was too stuck in those patterns and didn't dare to go forward. Whereas if I was into a routine of uh, doing the right things then it's it's okay to lose because what i can what what can i actually do what can i control on the court we will never ever be able to control the outcome of a match never you can't just decide to win a match you know, so what that that didn't mean anything in my brain you know you just got to win this match but it doesn't mean anything in my head because how do you do that you can play the best match of your life and still lose it, it it's as simple as that so i started to focus much yep. more on what i what I could control and what would make me the best player over the year. And then after the match, I could much, it was much easier for me to, to evaluate matches because like, like Johnny was talking about the, before having a long time of struggling with, with, with the defeat and stuff, I would get that early on in my career as well. It would take me six months where I couldn't put a ball into court and I kept thinking about how disappointed I was with myself. But after that, I never really had long moments yeah. of, of, of a bad tennis I had a few bad results here and there maybe two or three but it was never anything that kept lingering for a long time so I pretty much got into a to a, to a frame of mind where I was able to analyze in a much more healthy way and not get too caught up in results and and for me that's that's the way to to do it to to not try and get results 
is actually the best way to get results and try to become the best possible tennis player I can be logically must give me better results then because I'm a better player and yeah. the way I saw it the, the way you you explain it to where where I didn't do the things I wanted to do the way I figured was I which the way I it started to understand is that I would purposely try to play worse tennis in order to give myself a better chance of winning and when I started seeing like that it just completely didn't it blew my mind how yeah, yeah. how little sense it made and uh, and that made a big difference for me definitely and it's kept you on Freddie, the court. John? Just a quick one, Freddie, while you're on that, when you're talking about analysing your own matches, you've obviously, you know, travelled on the week, you've travelled a lot, uh, week on, week out. Would you have travelled with a coach a lot when you were on the tour? Or would you have travelled a lot on your own? Um, what, how would you evaluate the matches at the end? Well, I, for the most part, I was on my own. But at the end of the years, I, I had more coaches with me. And obviously, it was very important that we had a general understanding of what we were trying to do. And some of the successful coaches I had, uh, they were seeing it the same way I was. Uh, and, and some of the less successful didn't really see it. They didn't really work in the same way. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just didn't work for me. So um, yeah. uh, it, 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 uh, it, there was a little bit of conflict sometimes if I had some coaches along who didn't see it the same way. But, but apart from that, um, yeah, it would be much easier to, to analyze a match based on performance because you can quickly get into a frame of mind where you say, uh, if you win a match, oh, it was good that I just played the ball in here and made him made a mistake. And then the next match you lose it. And then all of a sudden you say, I was bad that I just played it in and didn't make a mistake here because he had a chance. So you can kind of yeah. change the narrative and decide what narrative to go on based yeah. on the outcome of the match. And whereas I yeah. decided to focus much more on myself and, and analyze my matches on my performances because I felt that that was the best way of, uh, of, of, of getting me to the best possible level that I could. And it would make much more sell, uh, sense to, to analyze a match based on those parameters. Very good. Yeah. I could talk to you guys about tennis all day. This is, um, it's brilliant. I love it. I love, I love the psychological side of it. I love the, the insights you guys are given. But we've now, we're now one week away from 2012 Wimbledon. I want you guys to get into that headspace as much. To listen to the next stage of the story, Wimbledon 2012 by Johnny, Johnny Murray and Freddie Nielsen. Go to part two of, of this episode. Guys, that was an absolute pleasure to listen to Johnny and Freddie. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to our second part of this podcast. Make sure you tune in for part two coming soon.